with his life. This is repeated many times throughout the entire New Testament. Romans 5.8, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Romans 5.9, we were justified by his blood. Romans 5.10, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. 1 Peter 2.24, he bore our sin in his body on the cross. 1 Peter 3.8, Christ died for sins once and for all, the just for the unjust. See, the ransom price is his life. Why his life? Why this particular life? Why not any other life? The answer is this. The ransom that God requires is not just death, but the death of a sinless, perfect man who is also God. The man being sacrificed had to be perfect because only a perfect man can take someone else's place. If he isn't perfect and he dies, he dies only for his own sin couldn't die for your sin, couldn't die for my sin. Only a perfect and sinless man can die our death on our behalf. Now what is crucial is this. This man, who is sinless and perfect, has got to be God at the same time that he is man. Why? Because if he weren't God, the benefit of his death wouldn't be finite wouldn't be for all time, for all people, for all eternity. It will certainly not cover the sins of the entire humanity. In order to cover the sins of all humanity, for all time, for all eternity, this man had to be God at the same time. And only in one person is total humanity and total deity found. Jesus. So only in the death of Jesus can we be delivered both from the captivity of Satan and from the wrath of God which is to come. Now this is the price you couldn't have paid and I couldn't have paid. So he paid a price we can't pay. So he becomes our substitute. And the death of Jesus forces Satan, our slave owner, to release from his possession and render void his claim on you and on me. And so what frees us is his blood. His blood is the ransom, the ransom price. But remember, I said there are two troubling questions, and the other troubling question is this. To whom is this price paid? If Jesus paid the ransom, to set us free. Okay, he paid a ransom. To whom is this ransom paid? This is a question that has fascinated students of theology literally for centuries. And I remember in Henderson, Auckland, when we were three years there at Bible school, in our theology class, arguing about this till the cows come home, as to who received this ransom price. And in some quarters of the theological world, this is still being uh, argued about. It's a fascinating question. To whom is this ransom price paid? 
some people believe that this ransom price is paid into the hands of Satan. That Satan had to be satisfied with a negotiated price before he would agree to release us. And after a commonly agreed upon price and that is reached and paid for, he then sets the captive free and gleefully he laughs all the way to the bank. To put it crudely. So that's one view. The Bible does not teach that. Remember what's the first reason two weeks ago we explored that Jesus came to earth? He came to earth to destroy the works of the devil. Not to negotiate with him. Never. The Son of God came to earth to destroy the works of the devil, not to negotiate with him. But if you push the question further, I know you're still not satisfied, okay? If it's not into Satan's hand that this payment is, is paid, then into whose hand? Who receives the payment? Because if a ransom payment is made, it's got to go into someone's hands. The answer that the Bible gives us is this God is the one who receives the ransom here are some scriptural warrants for saying that Ephesians 5.2 says Christ gave himself up for us an offering to God the writer of the Hebrew says Christ offered himself without blemish to God Romans 3.19 says that because of our sins, the whole world is held accountable to God. Romans 8.1 says when Christ gives himself as a ransom, the Bible says we are freed from all condemnation. Remember Romans 8.1? There is now therefore no condemnation for those who are in Christ. In him, justice has been satisfied. Payment has been made where he is concerned. Romans 2.2, 2, Revelations 14.7 all teach us that the ultimate captivity from which we needed to be released is the final judgment of God. All these verses validate the teaching that yes, we all needed to be saved from Satan, but ultimately we needed much more to be saved from the wrath of God. And it was not Satan who was satisfied with the ransom payment. Ultimately, it was God whose justice has got to be satisfied by the death of his own son. And indeed, when Jesus gave his life, he literally paid the ransom to satisfy the justice of God. There's one more question that needed to be answered before we can tie all this up. And that is this. Let me put it this way. You and I know that Jesus existed before Bethlehem. You and I know that Jesus existed before the first Christmas. He existed way back in time. He has always existed. There never was a time when Jesus came into being. His being has always been for all eternity. And that is why one of the names of Jesus is the Ancient of Days. He's from way... Oh, I can't say that, can I? I can't say he's from way back because that way of speaking says there was some time there 
way back in time that he began to be. There was, there was just wasn't such a thing. It's always been. Remember the psalmist say, from eternity to eternity, thou art God. I think it's Psalm 92 or 91. But there is a sense in which he could not save us from way up there, from high up in the cosmos, from way back in eternity. He couldn't save us. There is a sense, there is a sense in which he couldn't save us from being up there. there is a reason, and this is the reason why he had to come down here to save us. One of the things he said many times, many times over, is this. The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. There is one reason why repeatedly he speaks of himself as the Son of Man. Because only a man can die. Spirits can die. Only men die. He had to be, I have to use this word, I'm sorry, incarnated before he can save us. From the Latin word incarnate, meaning to become enveloped in human flesh. He had to become enveloped in human flesh before he can save us. Only flesh and blood can suffer. Only flesh and blood can die. Spirits don't die. So only by becoming a human person could he suffer and could he die for you. Only being incarnated can he save us. The writer of the book of Hebrews, and I'm going to rely here on the New Living Translation, the NLT, puts it very clearly. And let me read from there. Because God's children are human beings, made of flesh and blood, the Son also became flesh and blood. For only as a human being could he die. And only by dying could he break the power of the devil who had the power of death. Hebrews 2.14 And that is what he did at the first Christmas. The Son of God became man. I'm just so glad that Vicky chose of all the, the, the different carols, Huck the Herald Angels Sing. Charles Wesley. Charles Wesley knew his theology. That whole carol is remarkable theology. Veiled in flesh, the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Just in those two, I mean, who writes hymns like that anymore? Great man of God, Charles Wesley. Remarkable theology, awesome theology. Veiled in flesh, you see God. Yes, you see flesh for 33 years. You see dusty sandals. You see flies buzzing on his bloody face as he hung there on the cross. But veiled in flesh, you see the Godhead. And so you go, Hail the incarnate deity. Brilliant theology, isn't that? He may be veiled in flesh, but you can't see him. He had to become man so he can suffer and die for us. 
And this is the expressed meaning of Christmas. All right, time to tie it all up. I sometimes wish congregation would give their pastors an hour to preach. There's so much more that I had to crumble and throw into the waste paper basket. Because I say, okay, it's page 14 now. About time I wind up. All right, let, let me tie this up. And I scratch my head all week. How could I tie such a thing up? I don't even have to tie it up. I should just sit down and let you soak it all in. But uh, we need application of some sort. So that's the theology. And now it's the application. Let me put it this way. The greatest person in all history, the greatest person in all history, the most renowned person in all history, became a nobody. The person who deserves our loudest, longest, most thunderous applause was booed and mocked and taunted and jeered. Why? Second Corinthians 5.21 God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now don't pass by that verse too quickly. God made him who had no sin to be. Meaning as he hung there, he hung there as a hunk of sin. He became sin. On the cross, Jesus got the verdict that we deserve. On the cross, now believe this or not, listen very attentively, please. On the cross, Jesus heard the Father saying to him, Depart from me, you cursed, to everlasting fire. So that when we come to him, drawn by grace, through faith, we can hear deep inside us the voice of God saying to us, I condemn you no more. Jesus received the verdict we deserve so that we can get the verdict he deserved. He received death so that we might receive life. Now, this is the application. Because that's, that's still a little bit of theology there. So this is the application. You've got to learn to cherish this. You've got to learn to soak it in. Then, and only then, will you remain poised in spite of all the raging waters around you. And aren't there raging waters all around us, if not in our place of work? with our health, if not with our health, with some situations relationally in the family. There are all sorts of things that would cause you to be wobbly. There is only one thing that will cause you to remain poised and joyful through all life's problems. And that is this. You've got to learn to cherish this. Cherish what? Cherish that he took the verdict you deserve so that now already even now before heaven 
a new verdict has been given to you and that is no condemnation. You're free. The only one whose opinion really mattered deemed you very, very precious. You know, there's a very strange verse. I can't, can't help go back to theology again. There's a very obscure verse. Well, not really obscure, but a verse that little kids in Sunday school love to memorize. And that is Jeremiah 9, 23-24. Let not a wise man boast in his wisdom, nor a strong man boast in his might, nor the rich man boast in his riches, remember, but let him who boast, boast in this, that he understands and knows me that I am the Lord who practices safe, steadfast love, justice, and righteousness in the earth. This verse basically saying, don't try to get your praise from your wisdom. Don't try to get your praise from your riches. Don't try to get your praise from your might. We all try to get praise, okay? We try to get praise from our wisdom, we long to hear people say, hey, why, you've got it all together. We're longing to get praise from our riches. We want people to drive by our house, for example, or when we stop in the, in the red lights, we want people to look at our car and say, wow, it's not bad, he's got it made. We, we try to get praise from our, from our riches, or we try to get praise from our might. We like people to admire how we look, our physique, perhaps, you know, there's something very inherently wrong with the human heart. It is always on the prowl. The human heart is always on the prowl for recognition, for acceptance, for affirmation. In short, we're all looking for love. And Jeremiah 9 is such a brilliant commentary on the condition of the human heart. So it is inevitable that you will boast. And it is inevitable that I will boast. And you know something? It is not wrong to boast. Because God, believe it or not, wires us in order that we may boast. God actually want us, wants us to brag. He says, when you brag. He didn't say, if you, if you brag. He knows that we will. And He has wired us to brag. He says, if you brag. Sorry, He says, when you brag brag on the cross. When you boast, boast in the cross of Christ. Boast in the fact that he deemed you precious enough to pay the ransom price for you. The more you boast about how precious you are, that he should lay down his life for you, the more clearer you will come to see how deeply loved you are, how much cherished you are. And you will be put in a very good place. Your heart will be set at peace. doesn't matter if people don't, don't like you. doesn't matter if the boss doesn't like you. doesn't matter if things around you aren't well. You're very much cherished by God. So if you simply say, I believe in God. I was baptized in 1994 or something like that. It's not going to help you. If you simply say, I'm a Christian, it's not going to help you. You've got to boast in the fact that he deemed you precious enough to lay down his life to ransom you. When you dwell on that, you will rise from where you are. Otherwise, you could never be sure that you're good enough. Otherwise, you'll never be sure that you are affirmed enough. 
See, when you try to get your affirmation from any created being, you're always unsure whether there's an ulterior motive with this affirmation that has been verbally received by you. You're not sure where it's coming from. And even if you receive it, you know it'll never last. Because when tomorrow comes, you're hungry again for affirmation. The only way to be fully at peace with yourself is to say, I'm so deeply cherished by God that He should ransom me. I close with two questions. If you have been ransomed by the blood of Jesus, give thanks before you go to bed tonight. But if you have not been ransomed by the blood of Jesus, I plead with you that before the sun sets tonight, to ask Him to ransom you so that you too may be covered by the blood of Jesus. Shall we pray? Lord, we thank you for this wonderful verse that you've given to us in Scripture, that the Son of Man comes to give his life a ransom for many. And, oh Lord, how we need to be ransomed, how much we need to be saved. But we thank you that, that you've ransomed us. We thank you that now the world may topple around us, the world may fall to pieces around us. People around us may grieve us. But we know deep in our hearts we have been so deeply cherished by you, treasured by you, that you should ransom us. And we bless you and we thank you. Thank you for the first Christmas. And now prepare us for the second Advent that you should not find us away from you, but you should find us walking with you when you should come again, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.